0: Questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of. Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Bambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to tonight's full interview, which, by the way, it will truly be a trilogy, tonight will cover two hours of six. This interview will be broadcast in three different installments two hours tonight two hours the next month and the last part of the trilogy the following month so that's six hours of the life and technology of David Adair only the first hour will be available to the public the next five hours will only be available to members so if you have been procrastinating so far this is it Go to VeritasRadio.com right now and subscribe. You don't want to miss it. And before we begin tonight's interview, I want to share a message I received from someone who wants his truth out. Stay tuned for an exclusive Vox Populi interview coming very soon. His voice has been altered and certain information removed for his safety.
1: Hello, Mel. Uh, this is a... I talked to... I called you earlier, Bob. I was hoping you could get back with me. Uh, this is pretty scary. I've been through an awful lot with the government. Uh, back in O one they tried to kill me, and uh, I told uh, a little bit about it. I used to do special ops. I used to also fly exotic aircraft, including spacecraft. My codename was... I've done a lot of things, and it's real scary. uh, A lot of people need to know about it. I want the truth out. You have my permission to do that. We need to get together. Making this cold puts me in danger. You know that. Please get a hold of me. You get a hold of me. I need to get together with these guys. We need to hit this. Get the truth out. All of it.
0: And that was a portion of the message. I have included the rest at the end of this interview. I hope you can listen to it. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to submit a guest, want to be on this radio program, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website. Tonight we interview someone I've been trying to interview for quite some time. Imagine this. A child prodigy turned top rocket scientist. I'm not, I'm not talking about Dr. Fred Bell. The late Dr. Fred Bell. I'm talking about somebody else. This other gentleman built his first rocket at the age of 11. He soon progressed to the point that he was drawn attention to his exploits by people such as General Curtis LeMay and Dr. Werner von Braun. At the age of 17, he was taken to Groom Lake, where as we know it, Area 51. His name is David T. Adair an internationally recognized leader, an expert in space technology spin-off applications for industry and commercial use. At age 11, he built his first of hundreds of rockets, which he designed and test flew. At 17, he won the Most Outstanding in the Field of Engineering Sciences Award from the U.S. Air Force. At 19, he designed and fabricated a state-of-the-art mechanical system for changing jet turbine engines for the U.S. Navy that set world record turnaround times that still stand today. He is a world-class presenter and keynote speaker, seminar and workshop leader, and consultant. His presentations include little known facts and anecdotes from his involvement with the space program, commercial technology development, films, and the things he has seen at Area 51. And he joins us directly from the mountains of North Carolina. Hello, David, and welcome to Veritas. How are you?
2: Very good, Mel. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I could read your bio for the next two hours, but I'll let the listeners go to our website and, and, and read the rest because we have a lot of a lot of information that I want you to share with us here today. David, you've been recommended for years. We've tried to make contact with you, but finally a good friend of ours put us together. So I'm glad that Robert Stanley told you to give me a call, and we spoke for the last couple of days for a few hours. And folks, what you're about to l- to hear tonight, and perhaps in future interviews, because I don't know that we can cover all of this for two hours. Perhaps Art Bell did it years ago. Perhaps we might be able to replicate it here today, because there are things you haven't said in the past, and I've given you the green light to say whatever you need to say, because we are uncensored on this program. First of all, David, give us more of your background. Where were you born? Take us back in time in chronological order. Let's go from there.
2: Oh, gracious. Okay. Um, I was born in uh, 1954. Well, um, he said you wanted the whole thing. This, I have never told this part of my story. Um, the way I was born, uh, my mother uh, had her tubes tied um, after my after her second son and so i really wasn't supposed to show up and uh because she had uh, complications with a pregnancy and dr tied her teeth because he said you um you may not survive another childbirth well nine years later she she feels sick in the morning and it turns out she's pregnant and we have no idea how that happened and so as they i went to give uh she went to give birth and um uh, more complications, so they had to take me by cesarean. And when they got me out, um, I was a, a nice shade of light blue. I was a blue baby, which uh, means my oxygen is not exchanging red blood cells uh, with the oxygen. And um, and also my blood was a rarest. It was just about OB negative. And, um, and this is in 19th, January 6, 1954, in Welch, West Virginia. That's my
0: daughter's up. birthday, by the way.
2: Oh, really? Oh, my God. Um, but anyway, get your head around the environment. Welch, West Virginia, a, a Pocahontas coal field coal town, 1954. Uh, you know, technology's not big in that area at that moment. And so they looked at me, and they said, the doctor said, he's dying. Well, there's this man named Billy Rubin who created a machine that can change a baby's blood, but it there was only two machines and they were on tour, but that morning at that hospital in Welsh, West Virginia, the machine was down in the lobby on tour, and they said, really? So they they uh, ran me down there, they put me in that machine, and uh, the Billy Rubin was thrilled. He goes, well, here, I'll show you how it works. And I stayed in that thing for quite a while, quite a few weeks. And um, the only way they touch you, they put their arms in these big rubber gloves. So I didn't have a human being touch me for about six weeks. But my blood got changed over, and it now the most common there is, A-positive. But I still have the OB-negative traits in me. So um, Now, I know I've been hanging around metaphysical people and conspiracy people, and, boy, the minute they hear that... They're going to go, genetic engineering on this dude. And uh, I don't know, but it was just um, an oddity how I came in. But here I was. So uh, I grew up in um, uh, number 10 district, Pocahontas Coalfield in Welch, West Virginia. And um, I guess my parents noticed something odd about me around the beginning. Uh, My mother told me um, she saw, I was three years old, and one of my toys, (laughs) a rocket, no less, got caught between the refrigerator and the wall and I was standing there looking at it and I didn't ask for any help. She's just watching me. And I went over and got the broom, came back, reached back there and pulled the rocket out. And my mother's going, he's only three. He's not even talking yet. He figured that out. So, um, mother decided to keep an eye on me. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I just started showing different traits, but, uh, by the time I was seven, um, the I hung out in the library a lot, and the library wasn't very big in a coal town, and there was just a section over there in physics, and the librarian noticed that I was I had about every physics book there was, and I was reading them all over in the corner. She came over to, to me and asked me, she says, David, uh, let me see that book. So I handed it to her, and it was Quantum Physics Differential Mechanics, and she goes, sorry, you've been over here for hours. You're n- There's no pictures in these books, so you must be reading this. I went, yeah. She goes, you understand this stuff? Uh, yeah, I actually do. And she goes, well, how many of you read? I went, all of them. And I said, uh, I asked her, could you order me books? And she went, yeah, I can, but we'll order them, but you can't tell anybody because they get mad at me and um, for doing it for just one person, especially a child. And don't tell anybody you're reading this stuff, David, because it might... Might not set well with your friends? And uh, so just read these books and keep it quiet. And so she ordered me books uh, from everywhere. And that really helped because then I started being able to um, get everything situated in my head on where everything was in fusion containment, which back in 1954, there wasn't a lot. Um, however, there was fission stuff, but that still covered. Um, it's only 10 years after Manhattan Project. So... I just kept reading through the years, and um, my parents. Well, here's how you, see, you want chronological order. Here's a series of events.
0: Well, before you uh, continue, were your parents involved in any capacity with the government at all?
2: No, not. <laughs> are you kidding? My dad was a functional litter. He couldn't read or write. My mother taught him to read and write. Um, there's a movie called October Sky, and it's about a guy named Homer Hickman. It's a real person. Homer and I were born three miles from each other. Uh he was born in uh Coal Town. I was born in Welch. And um uh, you'll see an old man in a suit that's uh Homer's dad in the movie. That man is my grandfather. He was the superintendent of the coal mines. So I'm really connected <laughs> into that movie fairly well. When the producer made that movie he knew about me, so I don't know which one to do. You or Homer? And I said, well, Homer's 14 years older than me, so age before beauty. And uh, I said, go ahead and do Homer's story. But um, um, So it,
0: this is it, a true story.
2: Yeah, it's a true story. Yeah. And, uh, and Homer is way older than me. Uh, I really didn't get to know him back then. I got to know him later. But um, we always joked, it's something in the water back there because two of us come out of there like that. Um, but what happened, my my grandfather was pretty well-to-do being a mine superintendent, um, in the area, and so, uh, since my dad married his daughter, he decided to help my dad out. My dad was extremely gifted in mechanics, auto mechanics, any type of, of mechanicals, and, uh, so, uh, grandfather, um, Opened up, a, uh, got a gas station. My dad opened up, and man, it was a booming business right from the first day. But what was interesting is that um, the best customers would come in at three o'clock in the morning, and I remember my parents hammering the uh, blankets over the windows so he couldn't see the lights on. And these cars would pull in, and they got 396 Chrysler Hemi engines under the hood, and in the trunk is a 200-gallon tank, and it's not gasoline. Uh, they're moon runners, moonshine. And um, these drivers uh, coming and get their cars tuned up by my dad, to really beef them up, and they didn't want the revenuers seeing the lights in the garage because the revenuers are looking for these cars. And with so powerful as they are, they're, uh, they're hard to catch. And that's how NASCAR come to be. That's where their drivers came from. Uh, they became experienced driving on curvy roads, eluding the uh, revenuers. So my dad was real quick. He could really change out or tune up a motor in a hurry. And um, so one day this guy came through, and um, his car broke down, and it was a Weber carburetor, or sometimes called it a Spicer. And it's, it's an old carburetor way back then, but really complicated. It had a water jacket around it, and it was very complex. It takes you about half a day to change one. So the man said, uh, can you change my carburetor? And the dad said, sure. And uh so the man was saying, you know, it's gonna take a half day, and Dad said, No it won't. So the man said, Really? He stood there and watched Dad do the whole thing and Dad changed that thing out in forty five minutes. And the man asked him, Do you always work this fast? And uh Dad said, Well when I see what I'm doing, he didn't get the joke. But um the man said, Well, I'm coming from Detroit, I'm on my way to uh Florida, I'm gonna race. Um I want to hire you as my mechanic. And he sticks out his hand and goes, Hi, my name is Lee Petty. Now that is Richard Petty's dad. And next thing we knew, we um, uh, were on our way to Daytona, Florida, where my dad was with the Petty's. And, um, and so the first two years of my life, I was at Daytona Beach. And, uh, that-
0: and for those who may not know who Richard Petty is, he's uh, nicknamed the King, a former NASCAR driver.
2: King Richard. They have a full-size bronze statue of him with a little girl reaching up to him to get her book autograph. All in bronze. Great. And at Atlanta Motor Speedway, and he's called King Richard, and that's a, that's just not a frivolous name. That's that's a really earned title, and um, so that's extremely important here because um, my, the first thing Dad had me do, whether I wanted to or not, I was overhauling. Engines, the first thing I overhauled was a 426 Chrysler Hemi engine. I was 12 years old, and I overhauled it from the block up. I honed it and did everything, put it on a dyno tester, and it was about 680 horsepower, and, um, and it won a Grand National. So my dad was thrilled, and he said, man, I told Richard, uh, actually, Richard wasn't even dying, it was Lee. he was told Lee, he said, boy, wait till the world hears what David just did. And he and Richard both went, uh, Fred, we can't uh we can't tell anybody this. There's two reasons. Uh there's a child labor law they're get upset about, and that man over there named Bill France, chairman of uh, NASCAR, he'll hang us from a tree. So <laughs> we can't say a word. And um so uh Lee turned around and asked me, he said, um, you understand that, David? I said, Yeah, yeah, it's no problem. I just like like the work. And I did and they asked me, Can we do anything for you? I said, yeah, um, can I have, can I use the shops at night? And they said, you sure can. They gave me a set of keys and a code and uh, uh, said if I couldn't find what I needed to tell them, they'd order. So um, so there I am in the middle of a NASCAR racing shop, um, which is state of the art. They have all the, the tools, the benders, and the shears, and the presses, uh, I knew how to run those things even at that age, and my dad taught me. Is that
0: where is that where you acquired your foundation of engineering and inventions?
2: Exactly, um, a NASCAR racing shop and a NASA rocket shop—they're mirrors of each other. Both shops are designed for speed, and uh, we had drag racers back then. So the fuel in the shop was um, methane nitro. Uh, they even had liquid oxygen, which requires special. Uh, equipment to handle that stuff. It's a cryogenic fluid running about 375 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. But um, also they had aircraft, aluminum, stainless steel, um, every alloy you could think of because they could build their own bodies uh, on the cars. So that that was it. So I had everything I needed. And um, so the first rocket I built was bigger than me and it was a cryogenic rocket uh, it wasn't solid propellant it uh
0: was how like, old were you when you built your first rocket
2: i was 12 and a half 13 and it was um it was um, a cryogenic uh, liquid a hydrogen liquid oxygen and um quite a bit of a punch to to the btus of hydrogen so anyway um first rocket I launched uh, uh my mother was in the kitchen and I had this thing setting out at the far end of the property and there's no other houses around and uh, my friends were all standing around looking at it it's tall, it's about 8 feet and um, so about 100 yards away it was a control panel so I walked up there and I called everybody up to Thank you for listening To
3: unlock the full 2 hour interview including video formats, downloads, transcripts exclusive articles and more